volume one chapter sixteen and seventeen of a strange world by mary elizabeth braddon this librivox recording is in the public domain sixteen there is a history in all men's lives upon his return to london churchill lost very little time before presenting himself in cavendish row he did not go there on the day of his cousin's funeral that gloomy ceremonial had unfitted him for social pleasures above all for commune with so bright a spirit as madge bellingham he felt as if to go to her straight from that place of tombs would be to carry the atmosphere of the grave into her home the funeral seemed to affect him more than such a solemnity might have been supposed to affect a man of his philosophical temper but then these quiet reserved men men who hold themselves in check as it were are sometimes men of deepest feeling so mr pergament thought as he stood opposite the new master of penwin in the vault at kensal green and observed his pallid face and the settled gloom of his brow churchill drove straight back to the temple with mr pergament for his companion that gentleman being anxious to return to new square for his afternoon letters before going down to his luxurious villa at beckingham where he lived sumptuously or as his enemies averred battened ghoul-like on the rotten carcasses of the defunct chancery suits which he had lost from kensal green to fleet street seemed an interminable pilgrimage in that gloomy vehicle mr pergament and his client had exhausted their conversational powers on the way to the cemetery and now on the return home had but little to say for themselves it was a blazing summer afternoon an august day which had slipped unawares into june through an error in the calendar the morning coach was like a locomotive oven the shabby suburban thoroughfare seemed baking under the pitiless sky never had the harrow road looked dustier never had the edgware road looked untidier or more out at elbows than to-day how i detest the ragged fringe of shabby suburbs that hangs round london said mr penwin it was the first remark he had made after half an hour's thoughtful silence his only reply from the solicitor was a gentle snore a snore which sounded full of placid enjoyment perhaps there is nothing more dreamily delightful than a stolen doze on a sultry afternoon lulled by the movement of wheels how the fellow sleeps muttered mr benwin almost savagely i wish i had the knack of sleeping like that it is the curse of these hyperactive intellects to be strangers to rest the carriage drew up at one of the temple gates at last and mr pergament woke with a start jerking into the waking world again by that sudden pull-up bless my soul exclaimed the lawyer i was asleep didn't you know it asked churchill rather fretfully not the least idea whether very oppressive here we are at your place dear me by the way when do you think of going down to penwin the day after to-morrow i should like you to go with me and put me in formal possession and you may as well take the title-deeds down with you i like to have those things in my own possession the leases you can of course retain mr pergament hardly quite awake as yet was somewhat taken aback by this request the title deeds of the penwin estate had been in the offices of pergament and pergament for half a century this new lord of the manor promised to be sharper even than the old squire nicholas penwin who among some ribald tenants of the estate had been known as old nick if you wish it of course yes assuredly said mr pergament and on this with a curt good day from churchill they parted how property changes a man thought the solicitor as the coach carried him to new square that young man looks as if he had the cares of a nation on his shoulders already
odd notion his wanting to keep the title deeds in his own custody however i suppose he won't take his business out of our hands and if he should we can do without it churchill went up to his chambers on a third floor they had a sombre and chilly look in their spotless propriety even on this warm summer afternoon the rooms were on the shady side of the way and saw not the sun after nine o'clock in the morning very neatly kept and furnished were those bachelor apartments the sitting-room at once office and living-room the goods and chattels in it perhaps worth five-and-twenty pounds an ancient and faded turkey carpet carefully darned by the deft fingers of a jobbing upholsteress whom churchill sometimes employed to keep things in order faded green-cloth curtains an old oak knee-hole desk solid substantial shabby with all the papers upon it neatly sorted the inkstand stainless and well supplied a horsehair covered armchair high-backed square brass-nailed of a remote era but comfortable withal armless chairs of the same period with an unknown crest emblazoned on their mahogany backs a battered old bookcase filled with law-books only one shelf reserved for that lighter literature which soothes the weariness of the student every object as bright as labour and furniture polish could make it everything in its place a room in which no ancient spinster skilled in the government of her one domestic could have discovered ground for a complaint churchill looked round the room with a thoughtful smile not altogether joyous as he seated himself in his armchair and opened a neat cigar-box on the table at his side how plain the stamp of poverty shows upon everything he said to himself the furniture the mere refuse of an auction-room furbished and polished into decency the faded curtains where there is hardly any colour visible except the neutral tints of decay the darned carpet premeditated poverty as sheridan calls it the mark of the beast shows itself on all and yet i have known some not all unhappy hours in this room patient nights of study the fire of ambition the sunlight of hope hours in which i deemed that fame and fortune were waiting for me down the long vista of industrious years hours when i felt myself strong in patience and resolve i shall think of these rooms sometimes in my new life dream of them perhaps fancy myself back again he sat musing for a long time so lost in thought that he forgot to light the cigar which he had taken from his case just now he woke from that long reverie with a sigh gave his shoulders an impatient shrug as if he would have shaken off ideas that troubled him and took a volume at random from a neat little bookstand on his table where about half a dozen favourite volumes stood ranged all of the cynical school rabelais stern goethe's faust a volume of voltaire not books that make a man better if one accepts goethe whose masterwork is the gospel of a great teacher under that outer husk of bitterness how much sweetness with that cynicism what depth of tenderness churchill's hand lighted unawares upon faust he opened the volume at the opening of that mightiest drama and read on read until the wearied student stood before him tempting destiny with his discontent read until the book dropped from his hand and he sat fixed as a statue staring at the ground in a gloomy reverie after all discontent is your true tempter the fiend whose whisper for ever assails man's ear who could be wiser than faust and yet how easy a dupe well i have my margaret at least and neither man nor any evil spirit that walks the earth in shape impalpable to man shall ever come between us two churchill lighted his cigar and left his quiet room which seemed to him just now to be unpleasantly occupied by that uncanny poodle which the german doctor brought home with him 
he went to the temple gardens and walked up and down by the cool river over which the mists of evening were gently creeping like a veil of faintest grey it was before the days of the embankment and the templars still possessed their peaceful walk on the brink of the river here churchill walked till late thinking always thinking property has so many cares and then when other people were meditating supper went out into fleet street to a restaurant that was just about closing and ordered his tardy dinner even when it came he seemed to have but a sorry appetite and only took his pint of claret with relish he was looking forward eagerly to the morrow when he should see madge bellingham and verily begin his new life hitherto he had known only the disagreeables of his position the inquest the funeral to-morrow he was to taste the sweets of prosperity seventeen death could not sever my soul and you churchill penwin lost little of that morrow to which he had looked forward so eagerly he was in cavendish row at eleven o'clock in the pretty drawing-room among brightly bound books and music and flowers surrounded by colour life and sunshine and with madge bellingham in his arms for the first few moments neither of them could speak they stood silent the girl's dark head upon her lover's breast her cheek pale with deepest feeling his strong arms encircling her my own dear love he murmured after a kiss that brought the warm blood back to that pale cheek my very own at last who would have thought when we parted that i should come back to you so soon with altered fortunes so strangely soon said madge oh churchill there is something awful in it destiny is always awful dearest she is that goddess who ever was and ever will be and whose veil no man's hand has ever lifted we are blind worshippers in her temple and must take the lot she deals from her inscrutable hand we are among her favoured children dearest for she has given us happiness i refused to be your wife churchill because you were poor can you quite forgive that must i not seem to you selfish and mercenary almost contemptible if i accept you now my beloved you are truth itself be as nobly frank to-day as you were that day i promised to win fame and fortune for your sake fortune has come without labour of mine it shall go hard with me if fame does not follow in the future only tell me once more that you love me that you rejoice in my good fortune and will share it and bless it he made a little pause before the last two words as if some passing thought had troubled him you know that i love you churchill she answered shyly i could not keep that secret from you the other day though i would have given so much to hide the truth and you will be my wife darling the fair young mistress of penwin by and by churchill it seems almost wrong to talk of our marriage yet awhile that poor young fellow your cousin he may have been asking some happy girl to share his fortune and his home to be mistress of penwin only a little while ago very sad said churchill but the natural law you remember what the father of poets has said the race of man is like the leaves on the trees yes churchill but the leaves fall in their season this poor young fellow has been snatched away in the blossom of his youth and by a murderer's hand i have heard a good deal of that sort of talk since his death remarked mr penwin with a cloudy look i thought you would have a warmer greeting for me than lamentations about my cousin but for his death i should not have the right to hold you in my arms to claim you for my wife you rejected me on account of my poverty 
yet you bewail the event that has made me rich miss bellingham withdrew herself from her lover's arms with an offended look i would rather have waited for you ten years than that fortune should have come to you under such painful circumstances she said yes you think so i dare say but i know what a woman's waiting generally comes to above all when she is one of the most beautiful women in london madge don't sting me with cold words or cold looks you do not know how i have yearned for this hour she had seated herself by one of the little tables and was idly turning the leaves of an ivory-bound volume churchill knelt down beside her and took the white-ringed hand away from the book and covered it with kisses and put his arm round her as she sat leaning his head against her shoulder as if he had found rest there after long weariness have some compassion upon me darling he pleaded pity nerves that have been strained a mind that has been overtaxed do not think that i have not felt this business i have felt it god alone knows how intensely but i come here for happiness time enough for troublous thoughts when you and i are apart here i would remember nothing know nothing but the joy of being with you to touch your hand to hear your voice to look into those deep dark eyes there was nothing but love in the eyes that met his gaze now love unquestioning and unmeasured dearest i will never speak of your cousin again if it pains you madge said earnestly i ought to have been more considerate she pushed back a loose lock from the broad forehead where the hair grew thinly with a gentle caressing hand timidly for it was the first time she had touched her lover's brow and there was something of a wife's tenderness in the action churchill she exclaimed your forehead burns as if you were in a fever you are not ill i hope no dear not ill but i have been over-anxious over-excited perhaps i am calm now happy now madge when shall i speak to your father i want to feel myself your acknowledged lover you can speak to papa whenever you like churchill he came home last night from newmarket i know he will be glad to see you either here or at his club and our marriage madge how soon shall that be oh churchill you cannot wish it to be soon after but i do wish it to be soon as soon as it may be with decency i am not going to pretend exaggerated grief for the death of a kinsman of whom i hardly knew anything i am not going to sit in sackcloth and ashes because i have inherited an estate i never expected to own in order that the world may look on approvingly and say what fine feelings what tenderness of heart society offers a premium for hypocrisy no madge i will wear crape on my hat for just three months and wait just three months for the crowning happiness of my life and then we will be married as quietly as you please and slip away by some untrodden track to a paradise of our own some one fair scene among the many lovely spots of earth which has not yet come into fashion for honeymoons you do not ask my terms but dictate your own said madge smiling dear love are we not one in heart and hope from this hour and must we not have the same wishes the same thoughts you have no trousseau to think about churchill no a man hardly considers matrimony an occasion for laying in an unlimited stock of clothes though i may indulge in a new suit or two in honour of my promotion seriously dearest do not trouble yourself to provide a mountain of millinery mrs penwin shall have an open account with as many milliners and silk mercers as she pleases 
you may be sure that i shall not have too expensive a trousseau and that i shall not run into debt said madge blushing and so it was settled between them that they were to be married before the end of september in time to begin their new life in some romantic corner of italy and to establish themselves at penwin before christmas and the hunting season churchill had boasted friends innumerable as a penniless barrister and this circle was hardly likely to become contracted by the change in his fortunes everybody would want to visit him during that first winter at penwin the lovers sat together for hours talking of their future opening their hearts to each other as they had never dared to do before that day they sat hand clasped in hand on that very sofa which lady cheshunt's portly form had occupied when she read madge her lecture viola was out riding with some good-natured friends who had a large stable and gave the miss bellinghams a mount as often as they chose to accept that favour it was much too early for callers sir nugent never came upstairs in the morning so madge and her lover had the cool shadowy rooms to themselves and sat amidst the perfume of flowers talking of their happy life to come all the small talk of days gone by those many conversations at evening parties flower shows picture galleries seemed as nothing compared with these hours of earnest talk heart to heart soul to soul on one side at least without a thought of reserve time flew on his swiftest wing for these two madge started up with a little cry of surprise when viola dashed into the room looking like a lovely piece of waxwork in a riding habit and chimney-pot hat oh madge we have had such a round ealing wilsden hendon and home by finchley i beg your pardon mr penwin i didn't see you till this moment this room is so dark after the blazing sunshine aren't you coming down to luncheon the bell rang half an hour ago and poor rickson looks the picture of gloom i dare say he wants to clear the table and compose himself for his afternoon siesta madge blushed conscious of having been too deep in bliss for life's common sounds to penetrate her paradise in a region where luncheon bells are not you'll stay to luncheon churchill won't you she said and viola knew it was all settled miss bellingham would not have called a gentleman by his christian name unless she had been engaged to be married to him viola got hold of her sister's hand as they went downstairs and squeezed it tremendously i shall sit down to luncheon in my habit she said if you don't mind for i'm absolutely famishing that luncheon was the pleasantest meal churchill penwin had eaten for a long time not an aldermanic banquet by any means for sir nugent seldom lunched at home and the young ladies fared simply in his absence there was a cold chicken left from yesterday's dinner minus the liver wing a tongue also cut a salad a jar of apricot jam some dainty little loaves from a german bakery and a small glass dish of roquefort cheese the wines were medoc and cherry the three sat a long time over this simple feast still talking of their future the future which viola was to share with the married couple have you ever seen penwin manor she asked after having declared her acceptance of the destiny that had been arranged for her never answered churchill it was always a sore subject with my father his father had not treated him well you see he married when he was little more than a boy and was supposed to have married badly though my mother was as good a woman as ever bore the name of penwin my grandfather chose to take offence at the marriage and my father resented the slight put upon his wife so deeply that he never crossed the threshold of penwin manor house again 
thus it happened that i was brought up with very little knowledge of my kindred or the birthplace of my ancestors i have often thought of going down to cornwall to have a look at the old place without letting anybody know who i was but i have been too busy to put the idea into execution how different you will feel going there as master said viola yes it will be a more agreeable sensation no doubt it was between three and four o'clock when churchill left that snug little dining-room to go down to sir nugent's club in st james street in the hope of seeing that gentleman and making all things straight without delay come back to afternoon tea if you can said viola who appeared particularly friendly to her future brother-in-law if possible my dear viola i may call you viola i suppose now of course are we not brother and sister henceforward well dear have you been trying to like him asked madge when her lover had departed yes and i found it quite easy you darling madge he seemed to me much nicer to-day perhaps it was because i could see how he worships you i never saw two people so intensely devoted prosperity suits him wonderfully though that cloudy look which i have often noticed in him still comes over his face by fits and starts he feels his cousin's awful death very deeply does he that's very good of him when he profits so largely by the calamity well dearest i mean to like him very much to be as fond of him as if he really were my brother and he will be all that a brother could be to you dear i don't quite know that i should care about that returned viola doubtfully brothers are sometimes nuisances a brother-in-law would be more likely to be on his good behaviour for fear of offending his wife churchill succeeded in lighting upon sir nugent at his club he was yawning behind an evening paper in the reading-room when mr penwin found him his greeting was just a shade more cordial than it always had been but only a shade for it was sir nugent's rule to be civil to everybody one never knows when a man may get a step he said and in a world largely composed of younger sons and heirs presumptive this was a golden rule sir nugent expressed himself profoundly sympathetic upon the subject of james penwin's death he was perfectly aware of churchill's business with him that afternoon but affected the most arcadian innocence happily churchill came speedily to the point sir nugent he began gravely while i was a struggling man i felt it would be at once presumption and folly to aspire to your daughter's hand but to be her husband has been my secret hope ever since i first knew her my cousin's death has made a total change in my fortune of course my dear fellow it has transformed you from a briefless barrister into a prosperous country gentleman pardon me if i remark that i might look higher for my eldest daughter than that madge is a woman in a thousand if it had been her sister now a good little thing and uncommonly pretty but i have no lofty aspirations for her unhappily for your ambitious dreams sir nugent madge is the lady of my choice and we love each other i do not think you ought to object to my present position the penwin estate is worth seven thousand a year not bad said the baronet blandly for a commoner but madge could win a coronet if she chose and i confess that i have looked forward to seeing her take her place in the peerage however if she really likes you and has made up her mind about it any objections of mine would be useless no doubt and as far as personal feeling goes there is no one i should like better for a son-in-law than yourself 
the two gentlemen shook hands upon this and sir nugent felt that he had not let his handsome daughter go too cheap and had paved the way for a liberal settlement he asked his future son-in-law to dinner and churchill who would not have forgone that promised afternoon tea for worlds chartered the swiftest hansom he could find drove back to cavendish row spent an hour with the two girls and a little bevy of feminine droppers in then drove to the temple to dress and reappeared at sir nugent's street door just as the neighbouring clocks chimed the first stroke of eight bless the young man how he do come backwards and forwards since he come into his estates said the butler who had read all about james penwin's death in the papers i always suspected that he had a sneaking kindness for our eldest young lady and now it's clear they're going to keep company if he's coming in and out like this every day i hope he'll have consideration enough to make it worth my while to open the door for him i hope you are not angry with me papa said madge by and by after her lover had bid them good-night and departed and when father and daughter were alone together angry with you no my love but just a trifle disappointed this seems to me quite a poor match for a girl with your advantages oh papa churchill has seven thousand a year and think of our income my love that is not the question in point what i have to think of is the match you might have made had it not been for this unlucky infatuation there is mr balecroft with his palace in belgravia a picture gallery worth a quarter of a million and a superb place at windermere a man who drops his h's papa complains of being ought or sir henry featherstone one of the oldest families in yorkshire with twelve thousand a year and not an idea which he has not learnt from his trainer or his jockey oh papa don't forget tennyson's noble line cursed be the gold that gilds the straitened forehead of the fool all very well for poets to write that sort of stuff but a man in my position doesn't like to see his daughter throw away her chances however i suppose i mustn't complain penwin manor is a nice enough place i dare say you must come to stay with me papa every year my love that kind of place would be the death of me except for a week in october i suppose there are plenty of pheasants i dare say papa if not we'll order some well it might have been worse sighed sir nugent you'll let viola live with me when i am married papa won't you pleaded madge coaxingly as if she were asking a tremendous favour my dear child with all my heart replied her father with amiable promptitude where could she be so well off in that case i shall give up housekeeping as soon as you are married this house has always been a plague to me taxes repairs no end of worry i used to pay a hundred and fifty pounds a year for my rooms in german street and the business was settled bless you my darling you have always been a comfort to your poor old father and thus blandly with an air of self-sacrifice did sir nugent bellingham wash his hands of his two daughters end of volume one chapter sixteen and seventeen